Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on March 14, 2018, focusing on foreign-derived intangible income and understanding the benefits. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, Shani Sean, a PwC tax partner also focusing on international tax issues, Paige Hill, a PDBC tax partner and leader of our transfer pricing practice, and Michael Lucky, a PDBC tax partner focusing on quantitative solutions. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists addressing the unresolved issues relating to the new foreign-derived intangible income provision, including foreign use, services, and unbundling transactions. So what we're going to do here now is we're going to post some questions um, to which there really aren't any answers. So that's, <laughs> that's the wonderful thing. So anything we say, you can't really take to the bank because I can tell you right now, we're sort of waiting on guidance for all this stuff. Um, so I just want to begin to tee it up, but I'm going to turn to you guys to, to take us through maybe some of your thoughts on it. Um, so the first is um, foreign use. Um, we started talking about that earlier with, with you, Shane. How is it used? Um, uh, within uh, within the United States, without and all these questions around it, um, should part of the property uh, be treated as as foreign use? What if I have that sort of situation? If I have property that's going back and forth, things like that. I think of uh, airline industry or other things, or shipping, or all kinds of questions are going to come up, or uh, construction equipment that's in and out of the United States, or other things that are happening. Um, these are that's sort of the first question. Um, we could go through and maybe just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Cheney, you're gonna you're gonna one. answer, I'll right? That one yeah. Since <laughs> we talked about foreign use earlier. Um, no, so so Mike, I think uh, like you pointed out that there's no right answer to, to any of these questions. Um, when you think about you know, for example, shipping, um, which I know Mike, you're gonna talk about a little bit later. Um, or, for example, where products are crossing borders, you know, outside of the U.S. and then coming back again, you know, what kind of approach would be a reasonable approach? Do you look at, for example, that the number of miles, you know, that are incurred within the borders of the U.S. and versus what's, you know, outside of the U.S.? Do you look at the time spent where the product is being shipped from the U.S. to outside? I, I think those are all factors that we have to look at. Um, I think that people have looked to, you know, analogous guidance under, for example, 956 um, and also under 863B um, to determine what might be a reasonable position in, in those scenarios. And that's really what we're going to be stuck with. I think we're going to hear that again and again, developing a reasonable position. And I think the reality is even if we get guidance, it's not going to answer all the questions. Um, we know the government's going to do a great job of trying to get us answers to some of the critical questions, but you start moving down into the weeds and we're going to find stuff like this just not going to necessarily get answered. Okay, so now we're going to start talking about services a little bit. And Mike and Paige, you guys are going to be on the hook a little bit more. So you can sort of pick as we move through this next issue who wants to take what. Um, maybe you'll volunteer one way or the other. Mike, I don't know if you're drawn to one of the two 
remaining issues here. Not, not, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> and I know Paige, you're, you're Paige is more the, the you're who all over I would services. Defer to the services I know, stuff. I know. So to be honest with you, I'm, I'm more the, the product guy. So, uh, but I'll, I can give it a go. Well, I uh, add on to my response earlier. <laughs> The product well, guy. that's true. You could, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talk about no, your 863 b Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think you know um, what what Cheney mentioned is, is going to be really important here. Is you know there are there are some things in 863 b um, that that may give us some guidance on, on what it means. Um, maybe some of the the guidance that is around that area of how like when it comes to shipping, right? There are, there are court cases and guidance out there that kind of tell us what how the government was feeling at least at that time. Um, you know, as it relates to that. So I, th I think it's it's back down to, you know, the modeling is I think understanding your business flows and starting to document where all those different, you know, things that are kind of iffy, starting to get your head around what does that mean to, to the company, to, your, to yourself, and trying to then, you know, start to bucket those so that when you get guidance, you can figure out which one of those are going to get answered and which ones aren't and, and start to know what it really means. Um, also know if there's if there's any reason for you to maybe try to you know lobby for certain things to go a certain way or not um you know because i mean that's still a potential outcome here is is uh, understanding what could be the biggest you know open issue for you to have to think about and i think there could be transparency issues too um you know i think we've talked about maybe not explicitly here but you know if you have a restriction where you have to sell domestically, but you know that that product is for foreign use. Um, for example, if you sell through the government and they're, you know, um, fulfilling a foreign contract, um, you know, you know, may know specifically that that is intended for foreign use. And maybe you can demonstrate that again, what, to whatever degree that means to the satisfaction of, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, but in other instances, you know, if you sell an aircraft um, to a foreign airline, I don't know that you would have transparency into the amount of domestic use it might have from that. Right. You know, so um, I think there's sort of a reasonable level of what you can be expected to know and not being able to look through to your customers where you would not have transparency of, of data. So, um, yeah, I think you're going to have to take a practical approach to some of that as well. Right. That's some very difficult questions that we're facing. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about services. Uh, what does it mean to provide services? And we're going to come back on this. So, Paige, you've been tagged with being our service person. And the reason <laughs> that is, I'll say, is whenever slides get developed or people start talking about this, they go to the sort of the widget example um, and they forget the services part. And Paige, you've been a champion for the services side of this. Well, I'm a champion for all eligible income, there to you be go. honest That's right. with you. There you go. <laughs> um, no, but I, I think that... Um, you know, there are a lot of area of services that I have clients that are um, looking at that they might not have been thinking about even as being um, eligible. You know, management services are eligible. It might not be a lot, but it's certainly, again, in, in the world of maximizing your FDI opportunity, you'd want to look at that. Um, I think, you know, there are some questions about whether to provide the services you need to be providing them um, wholly within your organization um, or whether you can outsource to some third parties. And... Again, um, I think to, to think about how to the, most companies have some type of outsourcing to support their service structure. You know, if you have hosting to support your, you know, web services, um, is that outsourcing? Is it not eligible? Um, that would be very difficult to think about how you would bifurcate that out of your FDI deductible income. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, 
again, looking at the totality, I think the most important thing, and Mike, you said it from a modeling perspective, but I'd say from an optimization perspective is really cataloging all of your potential flows, being able to look through um, to, you know, what's happening once you get beyond the United States, because we did have that example of services getting around trip that tainted the whole bucket from being eligible, um, being able to catalog that and to really understand your organizational flows. And, and you know, where I, so I think a lot of companies have had good control, um, controls and processes around their intercompany flows, maybe not as good looking through to what's happening with their foreign affiliates and where they're selling OAs in certain cases because they haven't needed to. Um, now I think you're going to have, need to have even um, broader mapping in that respect. And so um, I think all the services elements um, really would, would, would link to that. So when she began, she started with sort of what is foreign derived intangible income and it's like it's it's all income except for and mm -hmm. there's these things that are excluded out and those things are pretty easy to identify I mean we're talking about for the most part maybe the financial services what is or is what isn't might be a little dicey but the rest is pretty clear so what's everything else um, but when they write rules they might write rules that are a little bit different for services a little bit different for sales a little bit different for licenses and the interesting thing is in a lot of ter i mean you software as a service you have um we have people that are performing uh activities related to sales but it might also be services income you're going to get into these character issues and you may fall specifically under different rules i don't know if they're going to break this down by character when they write the rules, because you just pointed out, there's some questions in services. Can you use some outside people? So there may be some special rules for services. So you're gonna to have to fall back to these real questions of what is that income? Well, I think that's right. And, and as we've seen even in in the beat, you know, the unbundling of transactions yeah. <laughs> could be very problematic where I think people have, um, because of, you know, the, the view has always been looking at the net income and whether that's right from an intercompany perspective, um, now understanding the component elements of various intercompany transactions, um, you know, and bifurcating them between potentially services, royalties, product returns, manufacturing returns, um, that's just a different place than we've ever been uh, in terms of looking at, at the appropriateness of all the intercompany policies. And so I, I think that um, to the degree that that happens, uh, again, that's, that's a lot of potential additional work in terms of how they might think about that. Right. Yeah, Mike, that, that's a great point, right, because today in, in our existing subpart F rules, sometimes we have to look at whether an income Most stream rules. is yeah. sales or if it's services, are we going to have to do that same analysis with respect to the FDII streams? Possibly. And it's not going to surprise, I mean, I mean, you're naturally going to have different rules for different types of income when they're sort of defining what is the amount of eligible income and how you're going to calculate it. So yes, we may have to navigate multiple rules, which, which will be lots of fun. And I think one thing to go, kind of go maybe we, because, you know, being a quantitative guy, we go more granular. There you go. With, uh, with, with Paige comments about, you know, deconstructing the transaction, you know, to take that after you deconstruct it, understanding how that hits your trial balance and where it hits your trial balance and being able to identify it in your trial balance is also going to be a very important thing to when we go to do these rules because a lot of times you can get those transactions through your normal, maybe your, your transfer pricing policies or whatever, and those are maybe a little easier from a data perspective to grab. But how does it actually flow through to your trial balance, and what is it getting netted against? And you know, is it, is it sitting you know in a debit account or a credit account? And so I think all of that stuff is is going to get to, um, 
extra complexity of trying to make sure we understand the different types of flows as we're deconstructing. And then also then how does it relate to the trial balance to start doing the gross income and then eventually your, your deduction allocation. Okay, we're going to keep coming back to you, Shaney, I think, and just sort of working through this panel. I'm going to ask a question about, this wasn't necessarily our example that we did before where we had a a, a third-party royalty coming in, but you could have royalties coming back from a related party. You can have sales to related parties, but you have to do some things. So to give an example, uh, we have a uh, U.S. Uh, parent is going to sell, we'll go back to the widgets, but because that's easier to, to actually transform. So we're going to sell the widgets down to a subsidiary. The subsidiary has to do some manufacturing, do some stuff, and we make sure that that is you know, maybe come, maybe it's coming back in the United States. Um, how are these rules going to play out when that's a multi-year process, maybe? <laughs> Great question, Mike. When do you recognize you. <laughs> the benefit? <laughs> well, um, what's helpful, and I think what I went over earlier, at least as a starting point, um, there's that footnote in the legislative history that, that is helpful um, in terms of at least not ruling out that a, a sale from a taxpayer to a non-U.S. person that's subject to further manufacturing, um, that doesn't you know, automatically disqualify that sale from foreign use. And in fact, that, foreign, you know, that footnote says that it would still qualify as foreign use. So then going back to your question, Mike, um, if that process over is over a multi-year period, how do you make that determination? Do you have to split up that profit um, over that multi-year period, or do you recognize it at the end of the period once that finished product is finally put together and ultimately sold to the foreign customer? Um, you know, hard to say. I think either one seems like it could be appropriate. Okay. Any thoughts on timing? I mean, you're the quanti Products quantitative guy. solutions guy. It's going to come back <laughs> to you. Yeah, I mean, when are you going to recognize this is, it? I think this, this question right here, I, I think they're going to have to address yeah. Because I think this, it, not only just with timing, but if you think about just if you think about just how just manufacturing in the country is, has gone over the last say twenty years, where we're still doing you know maybe what I'll refer to as the heavy, the more complicated manufacturing still in this country, but then those parts go overseas to be incorporated, where you know, maybe this process is a little more simpler, and you're doing them overseas for the product to come back in. You know, I think this is this is going to be an issue and a question that I think almost all of our clients are going to have um, that I think they're going to need to address. And you know, I you know, it's it's kind of anybody's guess at this point. I think on on where this stuff's going to land. And you know, kind of to page point, I think I think you just need to document it, figure out what your different flows are, take a reasonable position to start, and we'll just wait to see when we get guidance and. Hopefully it'll address, um, you know, especially this question. Like you said, I don't think it'll address everything, but hopefully it'll address this question because I think this is going to be a really big issue for folks. Okay. Well, I'm going to I'm going to keep moving through uh, some more questions here. Uh, the methodology that one should use um, for branch income, and then I'm going to ask another question that's going to come back to what is maybe branch income. So we've got different methodologies we can look at. Um, we can look at our books and records. We talked about that. We, we, we can look at um, transfer pricing concepts, or treaty concepts. Um, we can look at uh, provisions within the code. If you guys can give me your thoughts about maybe what taxpayers should be looking to, and maybe some of the, we talked about looking by analogy to other provisions. Um, what are some of those provisions that people might be wanting to look to? 
Yeah, sure, Mike. So, so it's exactly those that you talked about, you know, whether it's a 987 or page, a profits allocation method. Um, it, it almost seems that without specific guidance, although Section 904 does say that guidance is expected from the secretary to prescribe for rules on how you attribute these business profits, without that guidance, it seems that taxpayers should take a look at what kind of varying results they get by applying the various methods. Um, and that, you know, applying one method versus the other that gives you potentially a more beneficial result, as long as you can support that application, you know, it's, it's a, a free-for-all, it seems. Right. Any other thoughts? I, I agree. Agree? I, I think it's, a, I think, <laughs> honestly, I think it's right. a free-for-all. I think it's, yeah, I... It's uh, it's anyone's guess. But but I think what's tricky here, and, and I know, you know, a lot of us thought this when we saw this, that the foreign branch income is supposed to be kicked out. We thought, okay, foreign branch income, right? Immediately you think 987 profits. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where everyone can take a step back and say, okay, there's more than one potential method, yeah. you know, in light of lack of guidance that you could apply to see the different results. So speaking of methods... What if I make that branch a partnership and I put a 1% interest in there or 2% interest in it and I get through my sub-K brother and, and they tell me I had, a, I had the right purpose to form that partnership. Does that block the branch or do we still have to worry about the branch rule? It seems like this is one of those old questions, entity versus aggregate treatment of a partnership and presumably we will get some guidance on it. But it is, uh, it is a fascinating question that you will work through. There are a lot of provisions and regs that do, in, in the international context, treat partnerships as an aggregate. Then again, there are provisions, and I can think of one in 954, actually, even one of the places where we're looking for analogy here is 954, uh, dash, I think it's dash 3A6, which is really an entity provision. We're saying you can't attribute activities of the partnership up and things. So I think this is something they're going to have to take on. I don't know that it's going to be as easy to just jump in and plan by saying, well, I'm going to block that income from flowing up and being considered branch income and keep it out of being disqualified income otherwise. Um, and I don't know that you always are necessarily going to want to either. I mean, it's, it's amazing as people, I think, have worked through these provisions. You've learned that it's all in, interconnected and sometimes you're going to want it to come up as guilty. Sometimes you're going to want it to come up as subpart F. Sometimes you're going to want it to come as branch income. Sometimes you're going to want it to be uh, foreign derived intangible income. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.